Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Claire and of course this is your half an hour dose of some of the best science that we have ready, packaged up, nicely gift wrapped, ready for you to unwrap and listen to this week. And of course on the show with us this week we have... Chris and Stu, hello. Hey there. Hi. Chris, what do you have for us this week? Well, every week I think we try to find things that are going to be non-COVID stories, really. <laughs> because let's, let's be honest, that's kind of dominating science and the rest mm. of the world mm-hmm. at the moment. But it's, it is very hard to turn away from, from the, the COVID news. And you sometimes have to put a lot of effort into it. I mean, me in particular, I find that I have been... I'm a bit disheartened lately by the ongoing anti-vaccination protests, and mm-hmm. and you know, it's hard to think of anything other than that. But um, yeah, well, I mean, it is positive to think that there are a lot of people getting vaccinated, though there is true. there's been a real surge. This is very true. I think we need to focus on those positives, and so in an effort only to kind of do that, I'm going to look at a completely different story, which ah. is the story of smallpox and the vaccinations against smallpox which have been going on for over 200 years, has been available, um, and there were anti-vaccination protests right from the very start. So I thought I would have a bit of a look at the history of smallpox and what its uh, anti-vax arguments can tell us about what we're seeing today. Fascinating. Ah, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, And Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, I I was inspired by your story from a couple of weeks ago, Claire, about animals doing unusual activities which we may not always uh expect them to be able to do are you um are you talking about the musk duck you you bloody fool of course (laughs) i'm talking about the musk duck i want to know who that guy was working with incidentally that he kept calling a bloody fool that the musk duck heard it that often that it could learn this phrase interesting you know i hope that wasn't an apprentice this isn't a isn't an industrial or was he just um, talking to the musk duck was he well was he slandering the musk duck every single what, time? I don't know. We, we'll have to we'll have to get, investigate this further. But no, I'm I'm looking at animal behaviour and I'm looking at how you know animals learning how to do things or animals working out how to do things, which is a much more interesting way to look at things. Um, you know, people people do think we're pretty special. We we hold ourselves above the other animals uh, because of all of our amazing abilities and cool skills and things <laughs> that we can work out for ourselves. But, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that animals can actually do as well. And I'm going to have a little look into that world uh, in my story. Brilliant. There's nothing I like better than an animal behavior story. And it sounds like we have two today. Um, one of them around human, <laughs> human animal behavior and our other animal friends and their behaviour. So definitely uh, stay tuned and on with the show.
smallpox is or was a deadly infectious disease. Uh, it was perhaps best known for the, the blisters, the, the scabbing and blisters that it caused mm. on the skin. Uh, it was also a major cause of blindness um, while it was, um, that was like one of the other kind of effects of it and more serious cases of it. And it's something that plagued humanity for thousands of years. Not known exactly when it kind of first emerged, but there have been signs of it found on Egyptian mummies from the 3rd century BCE. And having like a, in some cases, like a 30% fatality rate for variations of it, it caused devastation on every continent to which it spread. Uh, In Australia, it was particularly harmful to our First Nations people. It's something that devastated populations when it arrived here. At that similar time in Europe, in the 18th century, about 400,000 people died every year. And it's estimated that in the last 100 years of smallpox's existence, it killed 500 million people. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. That is a lot. Wow. Yeah. The shining silver bit to that particular dark rainbow, I'm missing my metaphors here, um, is the fact that, that it is no longer with us. It has... It is one of the great successes of vaccination in that we have um, successfully eradicated mm. smallpox. It actually gave us the name vaccination. That's right. Because the vaccine is from cowpox, right? That, well, it's believed to the be... The original. It's believed originally from cowpox, or that's what Jenna said he was he was doing. A spoiler alert, I guess. Stu has spoiled my punchline <laughs> there. But yeah, no, it was... Um, it's. He called it vaccinia, um, the Latin after the Latin word for cow, because it came from yeah cowpox, which is a related disease. But that's not how it started, I guess. Initially, um, so the initial stages of it, it was kind of known as inoculation, or more properly variolation, because variola was another name for smallpox. Right. And this happened started about five hundred years ago, probably in China, also in Africa and other parts of the the non European world, I guess. And what involved was getting material extracted from smallpox sores and deliberately introducing that to people, deliberately infecting people, say, through scratches or, in some cases, people would inhale scabs in an effort to, to be exposed to the virus. You said taking bits of sores, so taking scabs and then snorting them. Yeah, taking scabs. There was one method in China was actually taking scabs and snorting them. Yeah. In other wow. areas, the, they would Sounds kind gross. of just... Yeah, they would extract like pus from sores and they would call it smallpox matter and they would keep jars of this stuff that they would, people again were trusted to carry around. You know, it wasn't ideal because you could still get catch smallpox from it. Um, you were still carting around the smallpox virus. And it's one theory that this is actually how it came to Australia in that the some of the European settlers who came here brought some of this smallpox material with them for deliberate purposes of inoculating people, and then somehow it it got away. No one knows exactly how, but that's one of the theories of how it was introduced to Australia. It was used for hundreds of years because it did seem to be quite more effective than just waiting to catch smallpox yourself. It came to the English-speaking world in 1721 thanks to one Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was an aristocratic lady who was introduced to the concept while travelling in the Ottoman Empire. So, yeah, she brought it to, to England and it it caught on, but again, still had this kind of this risk of getting smallpox. So this led uh, Edward Jenner in 1796 to come up with the technique that we discussed earlier, which was to use a related but less deadly virus, which was cowpox, 
as noted by the fact that milkmaids seem to be immune to smallpox. Um, he got cowpox from a milkmaid and um, used that in the first kind of official vaccination, and hence it was called vaccination as a result of being related to cows. Although apparently we don't know for certain whether the um, the smallpox vaccine that went on to be used over and over again was actually from Jenner's original cowpox, whether it was actually horsepox or whether it was something else, because record keeping in laboratories wasn't that great. And there was all kinds of different samples were mixing up. And so no one knows exactly what happened, but he thought it was from the cow and hence it was called vaccination. Sorry, do you think people would get on board more if it was called equination, or <laughs> it sounds it sounds more it sounds more like a quality, you know, if it's mm. horse box. Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to trying to get people. Maybe that's something you could put out there, Stu. I mean, because yeah. we do we do need to win people over. As Clay said, a lot of people are getting vaccinated, but there is a lot of hesitancy out there, and so it was in Jenner's time. Almost immediately, there were people opposed to it. And the arguments that they use are strikingly familiar now. I mean, thankfully, many of them wrote these things down in pamphlets that they distributed across uh, England, also in US and Canada. Uh, and they said things like, oh, that was like an, basically an experimental vaccine. So they basically they questioned the thoroughness of Jenner's research, um, saying that it was unproven that it actually did anything. He hadn't proven to their satisfaction that it worked. Um, similar people now saying that the trials have not been completed. They don't believe the research. They also claimed that you could tell that it didn't work because people could, the vaccine wasn't 100% effective. You know, people still could catch smallpox and they needed booster shots to um, to refresh their immunity. Wow. Are you, are you talking about Jenna's time or are you talking about what this... you read on the internet yesterday? Uh, I read this on the internet, but it was from Jenna's time. This was <laughs> okay, yeah, right. from Jenna's time. They questioned, of course, whether smallpox really was that dangerous, saying that it only really affected people who weren't healthy in the first place. Oh, they were also training their immune systems, were they? Yeah, that's basically. Um, but at the same time, they said the vaccine was more dangerous and it spread po- smallpox itself and led to, to more, more deaths. So they kind of weren't afraid of contradictions. Uh, in that sense either. They blamed the vaccine for, of course, causing other side effects um, and other illnesses such as tuberculosis and they were quite obsessed with syphilis. And there, look, there, possibly there was some truth to this particular particular one because infection control in those days wasn't great. And so the way that they did uh, the vaccination was essentially you would infect people with the cowpox vaccine and then you would pass that infection on to someone else. And you usually, they often did it by arm-to-arm transfer. So they would scratch someone's arm and get stuff out of that and put it in someone else's arm, sitting next to them. So it wasn't the most hygienic process necessarily, and it was possible for diseases like syphilis to be spread. There have been modern estimates of how much that would have been, and of course it was a very, very unlikely scenario but the anti-vaxxers of the time essentially believed that the vaccine caused syphilis yeah it is i guess you know we can perhaps liken that to um some of the modern vaccines that maybe have rare side effects but those get blown out of proportion by the people who who are ideologically opposed to them uh and then look then as time went on you had refusal persisting hesitancy persisting um the government ended up making vaccination compulsory 
1853, I think they made it compulsory. After first trying to have incentives, they made it compulsory. And so then you did, had the um, personal liberty did, objection. Did they also have Qantas offering uh, frequent flyer points for people uh, they to had get vaccinated? All kinds of, they had tried to have incentives to get people to get vaccinated. It wasn't quite frequent flyer points at the time, um, unfortunately. Was frequent, was frequent, frequent. frequent floater points because they were all on ships. <laughs> So that is had to go. That's a term. Had a f- yeah, that's a term. term I haven't heard before. But yeah, so people objected on the grounds of their own personal liberty, and at the same time, this was combined with suspicion of authority. They accused those of making and administering the vaccines of basically being in it for the money and profiteering out of it. It's big wow. pharma. It's big pharma back in the day. Ye, ye, ye oldie biggie pharma. Yes, there were some. Yeah. There was also some religious objections. You know, people saying it was kind of wrong to inject people with something from a lower animal, in the case of the cow, or even um, with variolation itself, that they were messing with God's plan, essentially. But like, like all the other kind of reasons, it's hard to know if these are genuine reasons or they're just basically rationalizations. Because, like, if you look at the religious side of things, you know, other clergy were all in for it, of you know, all kinds of variolation and vaccination. So it's inconsistent, I suppose. Do you have an understanding of what percentage of the population had had these views? Uh, look, it varied. One of the exam- good examples was the uh, city of Leicester in, in England. So there, there was these compulsory vaccination laws and they led to a lot of the objections. Kind of the fines administered for it were, were basically they're unfairly applied. Another kind of perhaps similarity with what we see today was the working class who were being most subjected to penalties under these laws. And so they were, they were mobilised to protest against um, uh, vaccination. And ultimately, Leicester essentially was vaccine-free uh, this is something that I guess I want to get into and try and look at what lessons we can learn from this. Uh, what they did in Leicester, they came up with something which is known as the Leicester method, which basically involved contact tracing. You know, you would find a case and you would isolate them and quarantine them. And essentially they're saying we don't need vaccines because we have this other method. This was a legitimate technique, clearly, as we have learnt now. Um, and it was a big part of... Um, eradicating smallpox was this ability to to isolate cases. So their argument, though, was that vaccination wasn't necessary. There were alternatives. I suppose you could liken it to the, the ivermectin crowd that we see today, saying essentially the same thing, that we have a different way of treatment. We don't need vaccines. But it is also interesting that this kind of idea of isolation is something that the the current COVID anti-vaxxers seem to object to as well. Mm. Um, the other th- interesting thing I think my takeaway for me is that despite all these kind of ongoing anti-vaccine movements and hesitancy and you know occasionally you would get outbreaks of smallpox where the anti-vaxxers had more um, more sway eventually the science won out. The last recorded case in the wild was in Somalia in 1977. So look the coronavirus is completely different. We may never reach COVID eradication but hopefully you know, the vaccines will be successful enough that the vaccine hesitancy will be less relevant and they won't have to have these arguments constantly because it won't be as, as threatening a disease. So that is one of, the, one of the takeaways that I took from it. The other interesting thing, I guess, was coming back to, I guess, something I talked about a few weeks ago. So the, the last, I said the last case in the wild was in 1977. The last actual case was in 1978 
in England when a medical photographer caught smallpox and actually died after contracting somehow from a laboratory where a sample of smallpox was, was kept. So it was actually a lab leak, a lab escape of the smallpox virus. So we discussed how this is one of the popular theories about how um, COVID may have emerged. I said that essentially that is a conspiracy theory because it involves conspiracies. It basically hinges on people lying. It doesn't hinge on facts. It hinges on not believing facts, but doesn't mean that it's not true. And I think smallpox has shown us that it can happen, that um, has happened in the case of smallpox. And there still are samples kept in um, a couple of secure, we're told, places around the world. But I guess it shows us we do need to have those security on those things as well, because it is a possibility. But yeah, again, the headline is that smallpox was eradicated. Vaccinations worked. It was eradicated in 1979. It was declared gone. But, you know, despite the success of of vaccination and despite the fact that the arguments against it were essentially proven wrong by its success, those are being repeated now. And I think perhaps we can learn that that the arguments don't have don't hold a lot of water and that hopefully science will win out over them eventually. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. People tend to think we are pretty special compared to other animals. We can think about abstract ideas. We can communicate effectively sometimes between defined groups of other people. And we can use tools. Tool use has been a feature of anthropological research since anthropology became a thing sometime in the 19th century, uh, mainly when it was accepted that humans probably evolved from animals. And people started going, why are we, why are we different from animals? We've got to figure out uh, what is the difference. And the distinction between people and animals suddenly took on great importance and finding ways that people were superior to our fauna cousins seemed very important. Scientific discoveries made by observing animal behaviour closely has revealed a lot, a lot that we have in common with animals, and many skills we like to think of as human skills are more common in animals than we might like to think. Now, Claire, I know, was talking a couple of weeks ago about talking birds, particularly a duck that seems to... Particularly a duck. Yeah, it seems to have been able to mimic human speech in a recognisable way for, effectively for its own purposes. It wasn't doing it to impress us. It was doing it because apparently it was showing off. Another group of birds widely known to have the ability of imitation of human speech are the parrots. Uh, of one course. Of our, yeah, one of our national icons, the cockatoo, is well known for this skill. A lot of sulfur-crested cockatoos have been induced, shall we say, to repeat human speech for, you know, our amusement mainly, and we reward them with little treats to get them to do it, I guess. Now, the speech itself is limited to direct imitation, repetition of phrases the bird has heard often 
without any context they don't they're not really able to genuinely converse now this kind of behavior as i said is usually reward seeking birds learn to talk because they get treats when they repeat phrases or words and so they continue to try even if they don't get a reward every time so maybe not so smart birds you'll do it anyway even if you don't get a reward but learning words is a pretty cool skill for a bird but the use of tools is a more complex task and surely too much for the old bird brain to handle of course records of birds problem solving and using tools is really quite old and reasonably widespread amongst the bird species of the world Mm. you know from dropping mussels onto rocks to break them open so they can sup on the muscly goodness inside the shell to galapagos finches using cactus spears to hunt insect larvae out from underneath bark this is one of the uh behaviors that uh charles darwin himself observed when he went to the galapagos and you know crows have been observed using stones to raise the water level in a vessel so they can drink from it which is something aesop wrote about at least 2500 years ago so this is not news really uh it's not it's not breaking research here that birds can actually use tools but much of this behavior that we have observed more recently is under laboratory conditions and it might be questioned how much of this behavior is taught by observers as opposed to being worked out by the birds themselves and that's a very tricky equation i guess to figure out um you know similar to birds learning human speech is how much of it is that they're getting a reward of attention Mm. or treats or whatever for doing the things that they learn how to do. But there is some evidence that wild birds can and do use tools. And a recent discovery has shown not only tool use, but tool manufacture among wild birds in the cockatoo family. Wow. The the cockatoos, we might know the sulfur-crested cockatoo, but they're a, a, a large group of parrots native to Australasia, which... Most people are probably familiar with, in one form or another, the sulphur-crested cockatoos and, you know, the the pink and grey galahs, which may not be as impressive, but they're certainly everywhere hey, in certain hey, parts of the I country. I will not hear a word against a galah. They are beautifully dressed. I love a grey and pink outfit. Great look. But the, the goffins cockatoo, which is also known as the Tanimbar corella, so corellas are also mm. part of the cockatoo family, uh, is native to an archipelago in Indonesia, and they have been known to observe other cockatoos and learn tricks, and they're easily trained in captivity. So just like the Australian uh, cockatoos, these Indonesian goffins cockatoos are also easy to train, and they're very, you know, they're very willing to learn as well. But a pair of wild goffins cockatoos have been observed crafting specific tools to feed on the seeds of a wild mango that they were fed by researchers so the researchers grabbed all these wild mangoes and fed them to these wild cockatoos and watched what happened but they weren't actually looking for this they were doing completely different research when they discovered this the cockatoos first used a thick section of a branch which they broke to size They broke it to a specific size to pry open 
the seed coat of the mango seed. Then they used a second sharp tool, which they'd collected, which was, again, the same size that they wanted. They looked and measured them and then grabbed this sharp one to pierce a membrane which surrounds the seed of this wild mango. And then they crafted a third tool to use as a scoop to scrape out the contents of the seed so they could eat it more easily off the ground. Because, you know, they they do have that curvy parrot beak. They can't get it inside a... Uh, a mango seed and these are tiny little mangoes they're only Mm. sort of like the size of an apricot so they've collected and manufactured three tools and used them in sequence to get into the contents of the seed and feed on it which they otherwise wouldn't be able to do they can't crack open the seed with their beak it's their, their beaks aren't strong enough to do that so they've come up with this method are you telling me one of the tools that they created was like a spoon Basically, yeah. They're bird chefs now. They've, <laughs> they they prepare their meal and then they yeah. scoop it out. And, yeah. Well, they, don't eat, so, they don't eat. They don't eat with a spoon, but they're so sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. So previously, this kind of tool-making ability of making a set of tools and using that set of tools in sequence has only been seen in primates. And namely, we can there's there's three specific primates that's been observed in capuchin monkeys, chimpanzees, and humans, and that's it. No other animals have been observed to make a set of tools and use them in sequence to achieve a meal. I guess. I mean, it is a goal. It's that's what they're doing. They're trying to get the food out of the out of the seed, but the researchers don't know if these particular birds worked this out for themselves or if they somehow learned the skills elsewhere right. from other animals or other birds or that mm-hmm. but there's no way of knowing because other individual birds in the group of cockatoos they were observing didn't know how to do it and they didn't seem to be picking up right. the skills. So I would have wondered like how they knew that there was this goody goodness inside the mango seed if it's so hard to get into then had they encountered these before had they perhaps been shown how to do it or mm, totally it's, it's because huge... i mean birds birds don't have a great sense of smell it's not like they could smell what was inside the seed or something like that well and even if even if they did have a good sense of smell you think a seed coat is pretty uh, yeah, solid. Up. It's yeah. the whole point of of having the seed coat. It's a it's a bit of a mystery, but it is quite amazing that they've actually figured out this process. And you know, there there are there are potentially ways they could have found. You know, you'd mm. find seeds that have been stepped on by a bigger animal and broken, or something right. like that, uh, to to show them that there's stuff in there. But the process of getting from a, a cracked open seed that they can eat to that's the same seed and we can break into it and get that food out. That's a cognitive process. So it's pretty, it's pretty impressive nonetheless, even if they were shown how to do it, that they've learned to craft the tools they need and use them in the right order to get the food out. And, you know, it, it just did just make me think that if the only other animals that have done this are primates, Planet of the Apes seems like a fantasy, but Planet of the Birds, there's a lot more birds around. I'm just saying maybe we should Planet of the Cockatoos. 
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight.gmail.com. We are Lost in Science 1 on Twitter or on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just join us again next week when we get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.